This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, mother of the house extravaganza, <laughs> Paul Anthony Nelson. You wish. Yeah. <laughs> and joining me in, in the glorious cave tonight, uh, mother of the house Labasia, Sally Christie. Labasia. I resent that. <laughs> and mother of the house... Pendavis, flick four, <laughs> returning. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> On tonight's show, uh, we'll follow the clues in David Robert Mitchell's new film, Under the Silver Lake. We'll give score to Neil, tens across the board, to Jenny Livingston's seminal drag ball <laughs> documentary, Paris is Burning. And we find out whether we're toys or trash with <laughs> Toy Story 4. Ouch. <laughs> Uh, but first, let's check out Under the Silver Lake. Four years after writer-director David Robert Mitchell made a splash with the John Carpenter-esque sexual horror film It Follows, his third feature, the L.A. slacker neo-noir Under the Silver Lake, finally makes it to an Australian cinema after a year of post-production and another year of distribution struggles. Andrew Garfield stars as Sam, an aimless, seemingly jobless young man who is shuffling through life, hooking up with an actress friend, played by Ricky Lindholm, and developing a few odd conspiracy theories of his own, somehow featuring Wheel of Fortune hostess Vanna White, when, while spying from his balcony a la Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window, he sees an attractive new neighbour, Sarah, played by Riley Keogh who he meets and spends a lovely evening with, only to find the next day her and her roommates have vanished from their apartment, with only a strange symbol on the wall and a lone box of her belongings left behind. Not needing much prompting, Sam embarks on an investigation to find Sarah's whereabouts, which will lead him to LA subcultures, underground lairs, more conspiracy theories, dog killers, owl women, and good old-fashioned <laughs> LA cults. But that's barely scratching the surface. Sally... Did this leave you looking at the world askance, searching for hidden messages, or just wondering what the hell it all meant? Well, I have to say straight off, this movie was such a self-indulgent pile of wank, but oh my God, I loved it so much. It straight away went to one of my top films for the year list. Um... I was a fan of It Follows, which was... I kept thinking about this incomplete comparison with Jordan Peele's Get Out and Us, how It Follows was just such a really tight, neat little film, and then he's come along with something to follow it up, and it's loose, like this movie is so weird. <laughs> loose is an understatement. Um, there was so many things to enjoy about this film, particularly I loved it, uh, LA as a character. Um this is my favourite portrayal that I've seen of LA in cinema in a really long time. And I like, I really like when a director isn't trying to hide that they're being like a total wanker about something, that they're just putting it out there. And this is a film made for film nerds, made for, you know, LA nerds. That's all kind of within this film that, you know, there's Sam, who's our lead character, is deeply unlikable, <laughs> like to say the least. But um, there's so much to really enjoy about this film. But I can also see why this, um, people would not like this film at all. 
My favourite part in it, I think, was I think it's in the trailer where, um, oh, what's her character's name? The one that goes missing, uh, Sarah. Sarah. When Sarah goes, she's swimming in the swimming pool, which is almost a shot by shot of something's got to give. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is really incredible. So there's all these nice little Easter eggs for um, film nerds like ourselves in there for sure. So many moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I um I actually had I knew that this was going to be a com- particularly confusing film. Um, I'd sort of heard a, heard a bit of buzz about it beforehand, and I think that I I went about it so badly. I had to fix a bike tire, and so was running late for the screening, so missed the first ten minutes, which is basically all the establishing information. And um, the guy at the <laughs> cinema theater was like, "Are you sure you want to go in?" And I was like, "Yeah, look." I- to go now <laughs> I've got no other time and it's such a long film that I was like yeah yeah I'll just do this and then um, they were very sweet they let me go in and watch the first 10 minutes after I'd just seen the film so oh, nice. I watched it yeah I watched it you know a weird little disjointed way which just only added to the weirdness that's, yeah, that's fine <laughs> and actually re-watching well watching the first 10 minutes didn't really help me no. that much anyway <laughs> not that much of a help and funnily enough and like kind of following on to what you're saying Sally like I was so willing even after whatever it was, like two hours, two and a half hours of watching it, are so willing to sink back into that world that he creates. It's just so... It's a weird little world with weird people and it's just so enjoyable. There was a point where you really, really surrendered to this movie or, well, I think that I did anywhere, anyway, that I just kind of was like, okay, I'm just going with this now. Mm. I'm not going to... Any expectation is I'm going to let that go and I'm just going to go for this ride with this yeah. film. I like that... I mean, I actually really, really love Garfield and and um, Kia, who are the, the two leads. Um, although I suppose that she kind of surfaces more as a memory or a, a sort of a, a f- an icon rather than a, a fully fleshed out character, which actually is one of the things I disliked about it. But um, I love those two actors so much and I thought that they had fantastic on-screen chemistry. And even that, that little the night that they have together just was so real I thought like they're kind mm. of just lying in bed getting stoned there's a bit of awkwardness there he is a bit creepy and even like he's disgusting <laughs> he's a bit gross yeah but, and he has the weirdest <laughs> run which I just enjoyed so much and I've just watched Toy Story 4 and I thought that he runs exactly like one of the ventriloquist dummies in <laughs> Toy Story 4 that was my connection With his arms between yeah. Yeah. yeah I just thought I thought it was fascinating like I really think he um, he's a very interesting Actor. I don't know. He's really I don't got, really know him from. Oh, I haven't seen him in a lot of things. He's, oh wow! Well, he's mm. Spider-Man. Yeah. There's a nice little oh, reference see, yeah. to his role in that okay. through yes. the comics uh, book. So there's so okay. many Easter eggs. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just thought that that was a very believable. And it, yeah, it was kind of just um, such a, I don't know, just really enjoyable little romp like lots of weird stuff happening yeah it was great with this kind of you know people someone with too much time on their hands and there has to be something more to this so shit's got to get really wacky and life has to have some really deep meaning which is i guess what a lot of us go through in our 20s. <laughs> oh, my God. All the nostalgia porn is just hilarious. Yeah. Like, the, uh, I just, I was a massive Cobain fan as a teenager. I was loving When I see the any kind of Nirvana or Kurt Cobain thing, though, it makes, I, in my head, I'm still like, that was five years ago. <laughs> it's like, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Garfield's character 
creepy and unlikable yet weirdly relatable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Same> <laughs> uncomfortably <laughs> relatable. Uh, there's something about, I think there's part of that mid-20s, but also that sort of LA state of mind, you know, you're sort of there for whatever. Like, we never really learn why he's in Los Angeles. Like, why, like, whether he's kind, yeah, he's a clearly a, a movie lover. Like, he's, he's, uh, walls are plastered with old movie posters. His mother is always calling him, talking to him about Janet Gaynor movies and films on TCM mm. and all this sort of thing. So he clearly has come to LA for some movie purpose that has gotten lost somewhere along the way, like mm-hmm. it does for so many people. And I feel like that that sort of a lot of time on your hands, nothing to do, and this this sort of magical land of you know weird, wonderful world, world of LA sprawled out before you as somewhere to explore is probably quite a common experience. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, like you, I had a lot of fun with this film. Mm. I, it's something about, I think the Get Out Us thing is, is, is really, is a really interesting comparison. Um, I do, although I wasn't the biggest fan of Us, I like it when filmmakers spend their capital to take big, weird swings. I think that too. I love that. I really, really appreciate that. Yeah. I, I don't want... A replica of It Follows or Get Out, like be weird. That's what I really yeah. like about cinema. I want to see that. I want to see someone Just being completely bizarre. Something that is, I think it's, and like, you know, for, from Magnolia to The Bad Batch mm, to yep. um, Southland Tales. Okay, maybe not Southland Tales. Uh, but <laughs> Southland Tales is totally that kind of movie. That it's like, I think it's sort of every filmmaker's fantasy to make a bizarre epic that just spills fully formed from your head over the screen. Like, yeah, I feel like every yeah. filmmaker wants to make that kind of film. And, you know, and, and, like, whenever somebody has that certain amount of capital, you see them just pull the trigger. It's like, yeah, I'm doing it. Yeah. And this is that film for David <laughs> Robert Mitchell. He'll yeah. never get the chance to do something I like this I thought you were going to say he'll never work again. <laughs> <laughs> That's entirely possible. <laughs> it is bizarre. I like how freaky it is. I like how I like, sexual yeah. it is. I like how... Like just utterly bizarre, it is. It's and I think you're right. Um, again, so with the um, the LA feel of it, that's mm-hmm. really what hooked me. Same, it's got a real sense of place. I, I feel that too. I spend quite a bit of time. Like I go to LA every year, and it was really fun because I feel quite familiar with the city. Looking through and seeing all these places, and even you know the parks and reservoirs that he's going to, that was really a lot of fun for me. And that he was just going and doing all these really wanky LA things. Things like going and watching a movie at Hollywood Forever Cemetery, yeah. and you know, um, yeah, I loved I, LA in this movie. It's so it's so self-referential though, like yeah. it's so it's so aware of what it is, and I kind of I think that's the awkwardness, maybe slight discomfort of watching it is as a bit of a film nerd. I think I was like as arrogant as Sam and it's awkward watching him being like oh and it's I think that that was um I don't know it's a fascinating character but I yeah there is a lot of um and so much humor in it like yeah. really it really line. funny very dark humor as well which I really I loved the interaction with the um the bookseller and yes. just like there's so many fantastic scenes there's a, the guy not, from the greasy strangle wasn't yeah, it yeah, yeah. Oh, that's where I sort of <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I, I don't want to ruin any any you know don't want to give any spoilers but there's a fantastic sort of um scene at the end to do and all about it's a real deep dive into um music and pop culture and there's this huge long um monologue that i just enjoyed immensely like it's crazy but yes i think stick it like if you're not enjoying the film just hold out for that monologue i feel like it really 
There's a few really of them does. like that. And I feel like it's sort of, it's really, like, there's there's a lot going on here. There's the fact that, like, there's only about three characters in the film that actually have names. Yeah. Maybe five. Like, mm-hmm. everyone else is um, yeah, actress, man, uh, ho- homeless king. Um, homeless king. <laughs> you know, like, hey, that is his name. So. <laughs> um, it, like, it's, like, I was looking at the... Like it's 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 quite balloon girl shooting star one, uh, final man. Uh, yeah, it's like nobody has. It's like they're all just kind of blurring, and he's more focused on the details, trying to find hidden messages, than he is actual people's People. mm-hmm. personalities. And uh, and there's you know, and there's a few exchanges in this film that seem quite telling about how pop culture people basically saying everything you love is meaningless. Like all of this pop culture, all of this art, like is all made for you know for corporate means, or it's made basically. It is kind of it is kind of made for corporate means in some ways that I won't divulge. But mm. and it's that sort of it seems to be that kind of thing. I like I think people who maybe come at this as a traditional noir trying to unpack the plot are kind of going about it the wrong way because yeah. I think the plot is meaningless. <laughs> They're yeah. going to be really upset. Yeah. With this movie. <laughs> I'll be very angry. <laughs> Because I think it's all part of it. I think it's <laughs> yeah. this, all this. I, there's a great line in the film. It's like, and it and it made me think of us actually because us seemed like a film made for us. The, the film, not us. us the film, film. not us personally. And I was like, oh, how nice, Paul. Thanks for that distinction. About flick. Us. Um, us, the film, because for me, us, the us felt made for the Reddit generation. It was a film where, like, the film is part one, and then the deep dives into the Pentagon building level of references became. This feels bad for the Reddit generation. See, I don't know. I feel like this is almost a comment on that, saying that, like, the the mystery, we we follow these mysteries and these rabbit holes because we, everything's so, we know so much now because of the information out, you know, because of the internet, there's no magic anymore and we're seeking it wherever we can. And Mm -hmm. so we go on these Mm -hmm. deep dives. There's, There's a line sort of approximating that in this that I felt was really telling about culture and also the film itself. Yeah, actually, the thing that stood out the most for me was the um, adage of nostalgia. I'm probably going to cock this up, but nostalgia for the past um, suggests dissatisfaction with the present. And I thought that mm, the way yeah. in which the future and the, the present state of the world that they live in is so, like, bleak and disconnected. Yep. And they've got all these little icons of pop culture nostalgia mm. that are just suggesting, like, yearning to go back to that simpler time. And the soundtrack is fantastic. Can I just say it's, like, this beautiful classical score, um, reminiscent of all of those kind of great Hollywood um, classic. So it's this sort of sense of like leading you down and, and asking you to read into a narrative that is not there. <laughs> it's a real like red herring of um, of, a, of a soundtrack. I was really like um, surprised and taken a little aback by when the score kicked in to begin it's with. Mm-hmm. And it was beautiful, like, isn't it? I was not expecting this. I was it's really incredible. Herman oh. sometimes. Yeah, it did. Yeah. It was amazing. I was, I was absolutely swept up in the soundtrack. Yep. I was just like, this is beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just want to listen to this. Yeah. And there's so many like, yeah, it, it does. There's a lot of Hitchcock in there. He's, mm. There's even there's a couple of moments. There's one moment in the particular at the Hollywood Century which just goes full De Palma for a couple of minutes. <laughs> it's just like whoa, split diopter, and we got the and it's just and he's so calling his shot. And yeah, look, I think I think a certain kind of film 
film geek will love this, this movie. This film I, is definitely not a film where someone's going to come out and go, oh, it's okay. I think yeah. you're either going <laughs> to like yeah. it or you're going to hate I it. It's one, one of yeah. those films. I, yep. did, I did find it a bit bro-y, I have to say. Yeah. And I think that it's yeah. aware, it's like aware that it, of I, its bro-ness. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> I think there mm. were... To begin with, especially it was super broy, but it is. Yeah, I, I think that's really of, intentional. And yes. he was very unlikable, and that kind of broness added to his unlikability. And he was gross, yeah. and he smelt, and it Actually, was just all part and, of it. And even the sort of conversations, I liked the the, the recurring. Um, motif of him on the phone to his mum and then he has him also staring at um, this older woman um, who's one of his neighbours through the binoculars who's potentially around the same age as his mum and it was like kind of like a I don't know. Yeah, I suppose there is a knowingness to it, but yes. it still means. Oh, I feel like they he, they could have maybe added a bit more depth to the female characters. Yeah, I feel like that that is. Um, yeah, the the, the bonus I think is commented on throughout the film mm, by yep. those things you mentioned. Also, by a few of the exchanges he has with um, uh, Topher Grace's character, oh, who's unrecognisable. <laughs> I, I was like, I didn't realise till I kind of looked at IMDb <laughs> after yeah. and went, oh, okay, because he looked familiar. The character looked yeah. familiar then, and I saw his name pop up in the credits. I'm like, who? What? Like, yeah. who wants that? <laughs> anyway. It's weird because it's a film that has these cameos. Yeah. But then they're played by nobody, like yeah. like just that random could, character yeah. actors. <laughs> like, like there's a, there's a like kind of like a, a songwriter character in the film. I won't say too much. But, you know, this character is under heavy makeup and, mm. you know, and seems to be kind of an all-knowing type. And you think, oh, who is this? And you look at the credits, it's some guy named Jeremy Bob. Like, <laughs> I was thinking that, that whole scene. I was like, this has got to be Tilda Swinton. Yeah. <laughs> Surely. <laughs> Tilda again. <laughs> Lucas out <of> again. <laughs> it's yeah. It's it's a fascinating, um, fascinating film. It's it. Uh, yeah, I've I found it an absolute ball. Yeah, I think you're right. It's one you've really got to sink into. But I think within half half an hour to an hour or so, you'll know whether yep. you're on its wavelength or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Under the Silver Lake is now screening exclusively at Cinema Nova. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. For our second film, we're going to go back in time for our retro title tonight, which is the uh, 1990 uh, documentary Paris is Burning. In Harlem in the late 80s, starting in the wee hours of the morning at clubs like the Imperial Elk Lounge on West 29th Street, you could find dozens of gay men and trans women of African-American and Latino descent walking the runways of drag balls, a practice that has since brought us everything from voguing to RuPaul's Drag Race. A safe space to be themselves, fully immerse themselves in their culture and feel beautiful, important, loved or just respected. Not to mention throw a little shade and a devastating reed here or there. (laughs) The drag balls flourished during this time when queer culture was still struggling for visibility, respect and mainstream acceptance. We meet participants who have formed surrogate families known as houses, La Beja, Dupree, Extravaganza, Saint Laurent, Ninja and Pendavis to name some. With matriarchal mother queens and their adopted children who have often been rejected by their own families and find love and acceptance here. Through their performances, personas and interviews, we are treated to a front row seat into a multi-level exploration of non-white queer culture and how divided then and now by class America truly is in a vital document of pride and joyful defiance that is by turns awe-inspiring, hilarious and tragic flick. God help you if you wore polyester while watching this because you know how the children are. 
Oh, mate, there's so many fantastic lines in this when I was taking my notes that I was just had to stop myself and I was like, okay, I'm not actually writing an essay on this. <laughs> Hold back. Um, oh, I just, I loved this. I loved every second of it. I think it's, it's so amazing having these stories told and the way in which the camera work captures this, like, beautiful, intimate moments and liveliness and real... Um, um, Strength, like this, it's this kind of really fascinating how that the 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 notion of strength came up so much in these interviews and and the ways in which um, so many of these people like held their bodies as they're like strutting down mm. the doing the walk and I loved the way in which these walk offs were were talked about as going into battle. There's such fantastic language that was used here where they were talking about. Um, Oh, one of the quotes I've got, a, um, one of the, the houses was saying that they come out to assassinate and this this sense that they, there is this um, non-physical um, war that's going on and it's just like it's through fashion and it's through the way in which the bodies are being dressed and the way in which these clothes are claiming all these like really bougie practices like they had these categories like town and country which I, I love <laughs> and my, my personal favourite which is like I legit try to like do this at work but executive realness <laughs> I was just like yeah the, the, you do the way in which the performativity of bodies and clothes it's just it's just like you couldn't find a better case study of that intersection of fashion as politics and queer culture than this documentary. Well, like, Judith Butler wrote a lot mm, in regards to Paris's burning in her work. I, mm, I'm pretty sure she yeah. did with performativity and the way, you know, clothes work and all that sort of thing, which is, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, and it, it's such a political doco with in sense of, like, just the content alone. Like, there, you, it's kind of fantastic the way in which the documentary maker... Uh, the, who's Jenny name? Livingston. Yeah, Jenny Livingston just allows for the stories to be told from the people themselves and I think that that really is the strength of it, mm. not inserting yeah. herself that, into the documentary. That's my number one, like, note on this. This is such an important film, Paris is Burning, like, it really, really is. But that was my sort of big note is the simplicity of the way that she has allowed these stories to be told. Um, there's even shots, I think, with Dorian in there where you see the camera and you see the boom and you just see all the equipment and they're not looking for any particular flashy documentary layout. It's just about these people and their stories and that's it. They're not going to tart it up in any Mm. way more than it already is. Mm. Um, It's just about them. Shot on beautiful Mm. 16 as well. It's so nice, Mm. isn't it? Authenticity. Oh, I could honestly watch the fi- this film on repeat. Like, just even like the the outfits themselves are so fascinating, and the way in which, especially for a lot of the interview um, people within the documentary, are um, struggling financially, yeah. and these the costumes that they create are, um, you know, a sort of what, whatever they can find, but also this sense of like the fabric and the quality of the fabric is so important and. It's, it's kind of amazing, really, when you have these um, an insight into those experiences to be like, what is it, what is it like to, to live in poverty and to have to... And for a lot of them who um, are involved with sex work and some of the dangers that come with that. And, yeah. Yeah. Just it's, so it's endlessly fascinating. <laughs> mm, yeah. um, and it's such a beautiful comment on class in America because mm. I, I, I once heard the... Um, the uh, head of uh, documentary at Sundance talking about this. And he said, every documentary come, it, it break all the good documentaries always breaks down to class. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's race, gender, what have you, it's always underpinned 
by by class and that's mm. this and the whole thing about you know executive realness you know like part of that is this you know hilarious wonderful performativity but it's also a reflection of class and it's mm-hmm. also that that notion if i dress like this and i look like this i could be this actually that's and an, that aspiration yeah. Yeah, uh, you know. that was such an important distinction they made as well. They said this isn't satire. Mm. This is actually being in that role in the moment and the mm-hmm. support that they get from their peers and friends in that moment is actually validating that identity. It's not to say, like, oh, how funny is it that I'm dressed up yeah. as a business yeah. person? Yeah. Say, I am it, the boss at yeah. this moment. Yeah. And if we were, if as, as, as you know, um, people of colour and, and, and queer people, if we were accepted, this is a, this is a situation we could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting with drag, I think, where we get that kind of disruption with different bodies and things like that. I know, say, for example, Divine, when Divine first started doing drag and would go to what were pageants, they weren't balls at that point, and everyone was repulsed because of the way that Divine's body looked. And then so then that becomes a whole underground thing and then we, we see this here in Paris as burning as well, that there's... They talk about, I guess, glamour pageants and how people want to look like movie stars. Everyone wants to look like Marilyn Monroe, Elizabeth Taylor. But there's no space for that because they these are people of colour, you know, and they're struggling so badly. So they've gone to make this whole different space away from that. So, you know, they're pushing themselves even further underground. And it's just, I don't know, this is so in such an incredible documentary and it's so, so important that... Especially everyone watches RuPaul, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> RuPaul didn't invent these things. Yeah. Yes. Totally. Yeah. It's when I discovered when I got into drag race and, and was suddenly watching it and it was like, that's from Paris is Burning. That's from Paris yeah. is Burning. That's from Paris. And you realise the influence, the shadow this yep. uh, the this and the culture that it was depicting has cast mm. over and you know, mm. I had no idea this was where Voguing came from. Yeah. You know, seeing and throwing this, shade. Yes. And, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I actually love the fact that they talk so much about what they're influenced by mm. and they're talking about how race plays into that, that, mm-hmm. yeah, the whole comment of wanting to look like Monroe and then, like, the changes in supermodels' bodies when they got, you know, very thin, thin and then yep. how that then informs what kind of bodies were being on the, ca- the walk. And it also kind of shows that the lack of representation, what effect that has. If you don't see yourself on screen, if you don't see yourself in magazines, like Mm. what effect that has on your sense of identity? It's huge. And also just what always, you know, uh, I find amazing about Paris is Burning is um, the, I guess... You know, the masculine drag that comes through in Butch it as queen. well. Butch queen. Yeah. Butch queen. Category is butch queen. <laughs> and, like, military and things yes. like that. So it's mm. just even these really, like, you know, you were both saying before, they just, it's them portraying themselves and how they want to be yes. out in the world. They don't have that space to be able to do that anywhere else except for in this ballroom. So they're going to be an executive. They're going to be in the military. Mm-hmm. They're going to be, what was it? Country. Ta- Town and country. Town and country. I'm going to correct it's, myself because I, I said the executive one was hilarious, which it wasn't. It was, you know, it was like, like you said, was, it wasn't no, satire. It was great. It was great. It was great. The one that's hilarious is the one where they're like on a ship or whatever and it's like <laughs> they've got all the, the, the Ralph Lauren oh, looking stuff. Fantastic. And then, which, of course, is the opulence. You yeah, own everything. everything. <laughs> I um, I actually really thought it was interesting as well how they talked about the acting straight and the mm. going back, you know, drag as going back into the closet. Mm-hmm. And I, I just thought that was so interesting having the complexity of desire and performativity broken down. Well, and Venus Extravaganza wanting 
to be a white wom- woman. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so nominally, you know, and like because she saw that, you know, they get everything they want. And she mm. saw that as her strength as well. Yeah. That, that was kind of her passing, mm. you know, with her, you know, her skin that she was quite pale and mm, was petite. And also the, there's a really interesting comment that um, oh, I've forgotten who mentions it, but they talk a lot about the notion of passing. So when dressing up in drag for those of the those that can leave the club afterwards and get home without any blood on them. Yeah. And just like I thought that there was little moments like that throughout the documentary that really underscored the the violence of heteronormativity. Mm. And I thought that that just had so much resonance with today and the number of hate crimes that go on. And, and I, particularly I, yeah. a moment late in the film, which is yeah. devastating. Yeah. Devastating yeah. when I first saw it. And still continues to. Yeah, well, that's it. There's still, particularly in America, you know, so many trans women of colour that, you know, suffer so much violence, uh, you know, killed really frequently that, you know, it, it... is still going on mm. and it's still really difficult, you but know. I, and, but I think it also shows that these spaces, the way in which they create a family, and like you were saying, Paul, in the introduction, that sense of um, a lot of these people may have been thrown away, thrown out by their family, so mm. they're creating their own queer family and community through these practices. And I thought that was really beautiful. And even the sense of, um, like, it's kind of pushed up against, but, like, that sense of... Um, Hierarchy where you have like the legends, and it's kind mm. of like it's almost like Oscar worthy, and then you've got the protege, and then the upcoming legends, Oscar the children, Oscar worthy, <laughs> yeah. Oscar worthy. Yeah. Yeah. I am not legendary, yeah. I am the children of the legendary. Okay. <laughs> and the, even the fact that they have like these these mothers, and yes, like, and also that the mother is the the center of power, mm. and mm-hmm. this, um, and the responsibility that comes with being a mother. And I thought that was so interesting, like. Really, um, this recreation of family. Mm-hmm. It was really beautiful. Yeah, yeah I, I picked this because I've... I, I, it's funny, it's the third time... I saw it for the first time three years ago. Weirdly, I, I checked my letterbox. For some reason, I seem to watch it every 14 months. I don't know what it is. It's because it's really good. Because it's amazing. <laughs> it's all of 77 minutes yeah, long it's or really something. short. It's mm. on Netflix. And as you say, Sally, it's one of the most important documentaries ever made. It's also one of the most, like, for all of its heavy themes and all the stuff below, it's also one of the most genuinely fun and joyful. I think that too. Mm. Like, well, I, I find myself quiet. laughing all the way through <laughs> this. There's just so... <laughs> that there's MC. One, one, one part where someone's making a, a tank top and his partner <laughs> says to him, how long have you been working on that? And he said an hour. He said, oh, no. That won't do. That's too long. Like, there's just so many great one-liners in it. <laughs> like, going, you know, getting free free lunches from Roy Rogers' yes. restaurant. And, and that MC, though, is amazing. Like, just all the stuff that comes out of it. Like, my, my quote about polyester. Yeah, just going, yeah. You know how the children are. Like, it's, it's just, uh, I urge you all, Paris is Burning is now streaming on Netflix Get out and catch it. It's amazing. Stay in and catch it. (laughs) Stay in and catch it. (laughs) Three triple R. Our final film for this evening is Toy Story 4. Nine long years after the trilogy seemingly wrapped up perfectly with Andy donating his beloved toys to Bonnie at the end of Toy Story 3, we return to Bonnie's bedroom to meet the toys again. 
Firstly is Woody and the Toys Rescue RC from a storm drain before Bo Peep is packed off and sent away. And then two years later, as Bonnie is nervously about to start kindergarten and Woody, whilst feeling less and less needed by Bonnie, is eager to make sure her first day goes well. After her arts and crafts materials are swiped, Woody surreptitiously acquires her more materials from the rubbish bin. Crowns, googly eyes, uh, pipe cleaners and a plastic spork, out of which Bonnie fashions a doll she calls Forky. But once she writes her name on his little popsicle stick feet, Forky comes to life. And despite firmly believing he's the trash from whence he came, he has to come with terms with his new life as a toy. A family road trip sees Forky go missing, Bonnie beside herself and Woody's search, leading him to an antique shop and playground, both of which serve as islands of discarded toys, including faulty voice-boxed Gabby Gabby, carnival plushes Ducky and Bunny, some creepy ventriloquist dummies and a Canadian Evil Knievel-style daredevil named Duke Kaboom, <laughs> as well as an old friend. Can Woody rescue Forky? Will Forky accept his destiny? Will Woody's only uh, loyalties be tested? And will this film virtually forget about Buzz? Sally, <laughs> did this film have a friend in you, or were you content to throw it in the trash? Um, look, this is a perfectly nice film. Yeah. End of review. <laughs> no. to, look, to be honest, I, I I haven't seen Toy Story three. I, I do like Whoa. the Toy Story. You haven't seen the you know, third one. I haven't seen the third. But I was like, I can kind of pick up, and I feel like I did. I feel yeah. like it was okay. I caught up with things, and yeah, this was fun. We could kind of get really into it and go, okay, this is a movie about accepting yourself and to be loved and not seeing yourself as trash and going on like that. I saw someone write a review for this film talking about about how it mirrored her alcoholism where she wow. was seeing herself as trash and not being able to be loved in the character of Forky. I was like, okay, I don't think I I viewed it that way. That's a deep Yeah, she'd gone really deep with Toy Story 4. But this was, oh. it was really, it, it was entertaining. It was totally enjoyable. I really liked the ventriloquist dolls. They <laughs> reminded me of Deep Red. I was like, okay, we've got a bit of Argento happening here with Toy Story. <laughs> That was fun. There was, yeah, it was, it was completely enjoyable. Like there, it, it really was. It wasn't anything, you know, incredible, amazing, but it was a thoroughly enjoyable film. I did. I enjoyed all hour and a half of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so shocked you haven't seen Toy Story three because that is still my favorite. I know. At all. I see. I yeah. would suggest. Yeah. Everyone yeah. has. It. Yep. It's said like, that Toy Story three is the great. one. Yeah. Mm. Um, I also I yeah. didn't realise it was nine years ago, though. I was yeah. like, that came out two years ago. I know. It's like the bane. God. Jeez. These were a real, like, wake-up call for, like, how old we all are. I was like, yeah. oh, Jesus. Um, I, I, like, love the whole Toy Story franchise. I don't know whether this one um, quite did it for me, though. I have to admit, I... I love to sink back into that world and, like, of mm. course, all the characters are amazing, so I don't feel like there was much need for um, lots of characterization and things like that. You know, I've got this new character, Forky. I did love the ventriloquist dummies. I was that saying was before great. that they <laughs> reminded me of Andrew um, Garfield, uh, Sam, in <laughs> Under the Silver Lake. They have the exact same run. Um, but I, I don't know. I feel like... There was something that, well, the thing I liked the most was that Bo Peep always, like, totally comes into her own in this film. And I thought that they really put a strong effort in having, like, much better race representation, much better um, gender diversity in this one than before. And I thought that there was a real emphasis done um, to sort of, I don't know, just, just, to, for a more interesting uh, character arcs, um, mm. usually, you know, Woody and Buzz are the central characters. And, yeah, as you said before, Buzz is 
basically forgotten in this, mm. which um, pops up every now and yeah, then. Yeah, um, it was a much more um, a love story of sorts. The one thing that I and maybe this is because uh, I did a bit of a strange double bill today of Paris is Burning, Toy Story Four, um, but I was thinking a bit about obviously very affected by Paris is Burning and I was thinking a lot about heteronormativity and I thought the way in which like these screen representations do uh, prioritise heterosexual relationships I mean like obviously it's a kids film so there's no um, it doesn't go too deep into it but how the, there's a need to pair up a lot of the toys mm. and I just thought like how necessary is this it's, and I was a bit uncomfortable with how it finishes in that sense. It's it's really interesting we talked a bit about this when we looked at the uh, Lego movie 2 mm. um, and the way, I don't know, have either of you seen the second Lego movie? No, I was glad I wasn't on that week. See, I, I'm a fan <laughs> of the Lego movies. I do like I, the Lego I like movies, them yeah. much more than oh, the wait, Toy have, Story films. Oh, no, I was thinking of the Batman. I was thinking yeah. of Batman. See, I, I'm, I'm really into it. I like the Lego mm. movies a whole lot. But there was uh, the the whole second Lego film is basically based around people having to get married mm. and 100% around heteronormativity. And it was something that I hadn't even paid attention to, but Cerise pointed it out when we were mm. on the show. Yeah. Um, and so I really noticed that in this Toy Story mm. because, you know, it kind of been pointed out to me with um, – the second Lego movie that there yeah. is this really kind of key focus on these heteronormative relationships and, and with toys or Lego, yeah. whatever. And, it, and it's so unnecessary. Yeah, it's it is, like totally. The, I feel like the this franchise itself, has, the Toy Story franchise, has so many strong narrative arcs like this. Um, I mean, I genuinely love them. Like, I bawled my eyes out through all of Toy Story 3. Like, I <laughs> love these films. I think they're great. But I just think, like, you don't need this. It doesn't need to be added on. It's almost like I, I felt like with this one, it was a little bit cheapened by that. Mm. Having said that, excellent physical comedy, as always. Amazing score by Randy Newman. Um, I hate Randy Newman. Uh, <laughs> no, but how much is it? Like, it's so... The, it's like the brand. You can't... It's just like... Who should listen to Randy Newman? Oh, no one, but it's like Toy Story. That's... If you want to watch Toy Story, you just accept Randy Newman. That, that, it's his, that, it's I the same Toy Story. From Family Guy where they did a, you know, his take of Randy Newman all those years yeah. ago. All, Randy Newman wrote a... A song disparaging short people, so he's on my shit list. Yeah, um, mine too. Mine well, too. He's now added to mine as a short person. So. Right, uh, you're dead to me, Randy. Yeah, totally totes dead to me. Yeah, I'm like you. I I found it perfectly fun and funny. Some people have been saying it's the funniest of the four. No, I no, don't agree with that. Yeah. It felt like a greatest hits album of one to three. And people are saying, oh, this is yeah. like the essential fourth. It's like, I can't think of a single theme in this other than the I came from trash and I'm a toy. Yeah, I didn't Everything find, else is from the other movies. It didn't yeah. have any real depth. No. Which is fine. It doesn't yeah. need to. But um, it felt more like a genuine... It felt... It's not nearly like it's a Pixar version of what DreamWorks would do. Sure, you know yep. what I mean. Like it's it's it felt more like a kids' film in that way. That it's like it's pretty straight up, straightforward. Mm. There's some pretty simple kind of, you know, some of the creepy stuff and some of the weird stuff around. I loved Forky. I loved you, Kaboom. Yeah, oh, yeah, he's great. Like, what's that kid? The Canadian kid? That oh, what was his name? He just started with all the time. <laughs> and we had the best Boxing Day ever. Like, all these Canadian references. Great. Um, also, the Yes, You Canada. <laughs> yes, You Canada. Um, Key and Peel as Ducky and Bunny were a lot oh, of fun. Great. Yep. So great. Yeah. <laughs> and then plans just always involved attacking attacking people. Um, and I like. I, d- I did also like the further focus on Bo. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And, and giving one of those because beyond Woody and Bar 
does, the secondary characters never really get much of a show. Yeah, so true. And it was great that they elevated one of them, even if it was to the expense of poor Buzz. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I think it's it's time. I mean, I've I've not like to be honest, I like everyone else is a big fan of the sort of first phase of Pixar films. This second phase with with the sequels, I've just never really bought mm. into it. I just it always feels like trying to recapture lightning. And I think the Toy Story series got away with it better than most. I think the first three toys, like the Toy Story first two sequels, were genuinely great. Mm. Two is actually my favourite of the, oh, really? the bunch. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and this feels more like more back to the pack with your Finding Dories and your. Monsters Universities and so yep. forth. Yeah. And maybe it's time for Pixar to go in a new direction. Turn off the light. <laughs> turn off the <laughs> Sorry. Don't dark. turn off the light. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have to say the, the final thing with Forky, yeah, the pairing him up thing was a bit gauche, but it led to one of my favourite lines in the whole movie. <laughs> that I can tell you anything about this experience. <laughs> oh, I won't spoil it, but it's a good retort. It's great. Um... Toy Story 4 is now screening in cinemas everywhere. You're listening to Plato's Cave on 3RRR with Sally Christie, Flick Ford and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On tonight's show, we discuss Toy Story 4, now screening in cinemas everywhere, our retro title, Paris is Burning, which is now streaming on Netflix, and Under the Silver Lake, which is now screening exclusively at Cinema Nova. You can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand, or check out the songs we played on the Plato's Cave page at triplear.org.au right now. You can also subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. Next week, the cave will be exploring Bong Joon-ho's unclassifiable palm door winner Parasite, Aussie in disguise Netflix sci-fi thriller I Am Mother, and our retro title, Fritz Lang's 1931 thriller masterpiece M. A huge thank you to Faith Two-Face Everard for both editing the Plato's Cave podcast and panelling the show this week, and Lisa Kovacevic for producing our show. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.